At around 4 p.m. on October 19, 2006, a pretty Mongolian socialite and mother of two is making her way to the home of her lover. She's angry at him. He's promised her a substantial amount of money, something that the young woman believes she is entitled to. She makes her way to his home on the outskirts of Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, thinking of all the things she's going to say to him and how she's going to convince him to pay up. Her lover is a powerful man with connections to the Malaysian government, so when she arrives at his home and begins screaming for him to come out, two bodyguards quickly bundle her into a car and drive off. This is the last time that the woman is seen alive. At some time before midnight, the woman finds herself lying in the dirt in a dense and isolated jungle. She turns to her captors, begging for her life, but to no avail. She is summarily shot in the head, but when her body refuses to stop twitching, her killers put another bullet through her skull just to make sure. The next time she's heard from is when police are called to investigate a body discovered in a heavily forested area in Shah Alam, southwest of Kuala Lumpur. Inexplicably, she hasn't just been shot, but her body has been blown apart with C4 explosives. It's not long before police identify the victim. Her name is Altantuya Sharabu. Welcome back to the Memories of Murder podcast. I'm your host, Agrit Bunyai. When we think of shocking murders, our minds tend to wander into the realms of serial killers, spree killers and torturers, things like that. Crimes that reflect the very worst of human nature. They're also usually crimes with long-reaching repercussions for communities that expose the flaws in our society. On the other hand, political crimes are normally connected to corruption or white-collar crime, ultimately more important in terms of consequence, but almost always less exciting. But occasionally, these two types of crime can overlap, and when they do, they have the potential to not only grab public attention, but also topple governments. Such is the case for the subject of this week's episode. The murder of Altantuya Sharabu was first and foremost a horrific tale of a beautiful young woman's life cut short. But as the case went on, it was clear that it was much, much more. This is a case involving sexual affairs, hired killing, extortion and a billion dollar submarine deal that went all the way up to the very top echelons of the Malaysian government. This is the story of the murder of Altantuya Sharabu. Altantuya was born in Mongolia in 1978 to a well-off family of academics. When the family moved to Russia for work, Altantuya went with them, and it was there that she became fluent in English, Chinese and Russian. She may have also picked up some French, and this will become important later on in the story. Upon moving back to her native Mongolia, Altantuya quickly became known as a socialite. She's sometimes referred to as being a model there, but there's no evidence of this, and her mother denies it, saying that she thought about taking up modelling but never really gotten round to it. By the time she was 18, Altantuya had married a Mongolian pop singer and they had a child. 
They seemed to be the model family and the high-profile marriage was frequently the subject of the local press and they were often seen on the front of glossy magazines. But the strains of marriage proved too much for the young couple and the relationship ended in divorce. Altantuya was now a popular socialite so she rebounded quickly and she soon married again, this time to the son of a famous designer. But again, the marriage ended in one child and one divorce. Today, both the children live with their grandparents in an upmarket part of Ulaanbaatar. As a single mother of two, Altantuya soon set about finding work so she could take care of her family. Given her language skills, it wasn't long before she began taking jobs as a translator. Not much is known about her clients, but her mother says she definitely led the jet-setter lifestyle and was constantly going on trips abroad. And it was on one of these trips that she would meet a man called Abdul Razak Baginda a meeting that would ultimately lead to her death at just 28 years of age. Okay, so this is where the story gets a little messy. You see, while she was working as a translator, Altantuya was supposedly introduced to the then Malaysian Defence Minister Najib Razak, the same Najib that would later become the Prime Minister of Malaysia for what is going on about 10 years now. This meeting is impossible to substantiate, but if it's true, it makes what happens next very murky indeed. According to reports, Najib and Altantuya may have had a romantic relationship. Again, this is impossible to prove. Najib certainly isn't going to corroborate that rumour. But regardless, it's believed that Najib introduced this pretty young Mongolian translator to Baginda at an international diamond exhibition in Hong Kong. Let's talk about Baginda now. He was a defence analyst with the Malaysian Strategic Research Centre. That was an independent think tank that aided the Malaysian government on defence issues. He was already married, but that did not stop him from striking up a relationship with Altantuya. The two allegedly travelled together frequently, and Altantuya's language skills proved invaluable to Baginda in his work. Soon, Altantuya would accompany Baginda to Paris, where he and Defence Minister Najib were negotiating a billion-dollar deal to purchase Scopine submarines for the Malaysian Navy. Some reports suggest that Altantuya was there to help with translations. However, both the Malaysian and French contingencies spoke fluent English. And as we know from the beginning, Altantuya's French wasn't that good. Even her mother claimed that she wasn't particularly fluent. So this caused for debate as to why she was actually there. Most likely, she had accompanied Beginda as his mistress. When the deal had closed, the two did spend some time travelling Europe together before he returned to Malaysia and she travelled to Hong Kong. Once she had arrived in Hong Kong, Altantuya met with some of her friends and she told them all about her trip to Paris with her lover and a man that she referred to as the Big Boss. According to these friends, she did show them pictures of herself standing at tourist sites and in front of nightclubs in Paris with these two men. However, these pictures have yet to surface as hard evidence. Nobody knows what happened to them. Now, what happened between the Paris trip and Altantuya's death is uncertain, but it is believed that during their trip together, Altantuya managed to get hold of some rather damning information regarding the details of the submarine deal. Investigators would later point out discrepancies surrounding the deal, including a payment of 114 million euros into the account of a company that was controlled by Beginda. Most likely, this was a bribe paid by the French company to secure the deal with Malaysia. To back this up, after years of dragging their feet, French prosecutors managed to back this claim up. The former president of Thales International Asia, 
the company handling the deal, was formally indicted in 2016 for active bribery of foreign public officials, including Najib Razak. So, we now know that some shady dealings were going on, and apparently so did Altantuya. A letter that was discovered after her death suggests that she knew of the bribe payments and wanted her cut of the deal. She had been trying to blackmail Maginda to the tune of $500,000, and at the time, the information that she had, that Najib Razak, a public official who was seeking to become prime minister, was involved in some kind of corruption, could have ruined everything for him. Clearly, Baginda did not pay for that silence, and that's why, on October 19, 2006, Altantuya made her way to Baginda's home in hopes of getting her money and ended up being murdered instead. So that was the background. Now back to the case. Once the body had been identified by forensic investigators, it wasn't long before the police had their suspects in custody. They arrested Abdul Razak Baginda along with two other men, 30-year-old Azila Hadri and 35-year-old Sirul Azar Umar. As the investigation proceeded, it turned out that these two men were former police officers. And even more interestingly than that, at the time of the murder, they had been assigned as bodyguards to the office of the Deputy Prime Minister, Najib Razak. At the time, Azila and Sarul were charged with murder, while Baginda was only charged with abetting. So here it seems we have a clear case of blackmail and murder, open and shut. But in Asia, powerful people can easily make issues like this disappear. In Asia, justice is a lot less important than money and power. The court case got off to a bad start. The trial was postponed not once, but twice. And one of these postponements was so that the judge, the prosecution and the defence teams could all be changed. Then there was the issue of whether or not Altantuya had ever even entered France. If she hadn't, that would have raised questions about the relationship between her and Beginda and whether Beginda had ever even known her. To make matters worse, French authorities claim that there are no records of anyone by the name Altantuya ever entering France. There were, however, records of a Sharabu Bayaskalan, who bore similarities to, but was never conclusively identified as Altantuya. This revelation could have really destroyed the prosecution's case. But then, without explanation, Beginda admits to having travelled to France together with Altantuya. If there was no evidence, what could have driven him to give up this vital piece of information? Could it be that someone was behind him pulling the strings? In all of this mess, it's easy to forget the man that Altantuya referred to as the big boss, or perhaps defence minister and soon-to-be prime minister Najib Razak and his involvement. Now, there's never been any legal accusation that Najib was involved or had any knowledge of the murder. But when his close aide and two of his personal security detail are implicated, it's easy to see how it would be in his best interest to make the whole thing go away. Take, for example, the issue of the photograph of Altantuya in Paris. When her friends testified in court about having seen this picture and saying that it showed Altantuya, Beginda and a government official posing together, the Sharibu family lawyer attempted to ask who was this government official, at which point the defence and also the remaining prosecution stood up to block the question. No prizes for guessing who that person could have been. So then the Sharibu family lawyer makes a motion to call Najib himself to testify in court. This is in order to help establish a connection and a motive for the murder. 
But the judge decides to deny this request, claiming that the lawyer was in absolutely no position to make such an application, that the lawyer for the defence is in no position to make an application to call a new witness. Seems a bit strange to me. The family lawyer's next move would be to call upon a private investigator who was known as Bala. He was under the employ of Beginda, and in what must have seemed like a knockout blow at the time, Bala made a statutory statement that Najib Razak had originally been the one in a relationship with Al-Tantuya, and that he had only passed her off to Beginda when he realised that she might cause him trouble later on. But then, in a shocking turn of events, the very next day, he retracted that statement and said that none of it was true. Following his change in statement, he subsequently fled the country and spent the next few years moving around Asia. It's not clear how he paid for this or why he left so suddenly, but it's easy to see how he could have been forced to change his statement, especially if there were people higher up putting that pressure on him. Just to wrap this segment on Bala up and to feed the conspiracy theories even more, he reappeared in Malaysia a few years later, again changing his statement. This time he claimed that it had all been true, that Al-Tantuya had in fact been in a relationship with Najib and now he felt was the right time that he needed to come out and fight for her justice. But then, less than a month after his return to Malaysia, doctors diagnose him with heart disease and just a few days after that, he dies of a heart attack. There's no claim of foul play, but it does look suspicious. Moving back to the trial, what was already proving to be an excruciating ordeal for Al-Tantuya's family was made worse when, on October 31st, 2008, the High Court acquitted Abdul Razak Beginda of all involvement in her murder. No doubt the family was distraught, made clear by the fact that Al-Tantuya's father is still trying to sue a civil suit against Beginda today. As for Beginda, as soon as he was acquitted, wanting to keep clear of the limelight and, of course, public scrutiny, he fled to England and, of all things, he pursued a doctorate degree. He reappeared in Malaysia in 2015, hoping to return to politics, but so far he's contended himself with working as a consultant for now. And so, we move on to the two men accused of pulling the trigger on Al-Tantuya, the bodyguards and former policemen, Azila Hadri and Cyril Umar. If higher powers had been working behind the scenes to ensure that Najib Razak and Beginda would get off without punishment, the same could not be said for Azila and Cyril. Knowing that there was no way that they could get away with it, both men began blaming each other. Ultimately, this tactic meant that both were found guilty of murder, and this being Malaysia, both were sentenced to death. The only problem is that no motive was ever established. There was no connection between these two men and Al-Tantuya. If you discount the Najib Baginda connection, there was absolutely no reason why these two bodyguards would want her dead, or, in fact, to do it execution style and blow her body up with C4 explosives. Even stranger, during the trial, the presiding judge even ruled that asking for a motive as to why these two men would have wanted her dead was completely irrelevant. Flash forward to 2009 and the two former policemen are now in prison awaiting their execution, but... As you know by now, the story doesn't end there. In 2013, following an appeal, it turned out that both men would be acquitted and set free, and the reason being, unbelievably, that the prosecution had failed to establish a motive. Remember, the judge had said that asking for a motive was irrelevant. So now both men are free, but that freedom doesn't last long. We jump forward ahead another two years, and the indecisive Malaysian justice system has decided to overturn the acquittal this time, and again, both men are guilty. However, Cyril suspects that something is up and he never turns himself in. Instead, he flees to Australia to seek political asylum. 
Today, he waits in legal limbo. Australia is unlikely to let him stay, as he is a convicted murderer, but they can't deport him either, as Australia doesn't extradite people who face the death penalty. To this day, he stays at a refugee camp, although his story has changed somewhat. He openly admits that he was involved in Altan Tuya's murder, but now he says he didn't pull the trigger that someone else did. Now he's saying that Baginda pulled the trigger himself. And to top it off, he also implicates top government officials as being involved in the plot, but he never goes so far as to name Najib Razak himself. Before we get carried away thinking that this may sound like vindication, that at last the real criminals will be punished, let's not forget that Cyril is a man desperate to enter Australia to see his freedom once more. He probably would say anything to get what he wants, and it's quite possible that he's latched on to this theory that there's a huge government conspiracy because that's what everyone believes and that's what everyone wants to hear. And to him, this is simply a means to an end. In other words, take his story with a grain of salt. As for his partner, Azilla, well, he wasn't quite so lucky. He turned himself in and went back to prison, and today he's still awaiting execution. So that's about it. Altantuya is dead and it's unlikely that as of right now we'll ever truly know why she was murdered. What's worse is that aside from Azilla, it seems like no one will ever be punished and her family will never receive justice. The culprits, whoever they may be, seem to have gotten away with it. But there is one player in this story for whom the controversy has never disappeared, the current Malaysian Prime Minister, Najib Razak. During the time of the trial, despite his alleged involvement in the case, Najib actually ran for Prime Minister and he won without any hiccups. Despite the public outrage and calls for an investigation, despite French investigators claiming that he was bribed by the former president of Thales International Asia in the Scopine submarine deal, and despite the fact that Al-Tantuya's body was blown apart by C4. This is, of course, a military-grade weapon, and that would have needed to be cleared by none other than the defence minister. And at the time, who was the defence minister? Of course, it was Najib Razak. But despite all of this, he's never truly been hurt by the accusations. The only thing he's ever done to prove his innocence was stand inside a mosque and invoke the name of Allah as he denies any involvement in the murder, and then after that acted as if all was well. But even though Najib seems to have escaped unscathed in this murder case, it hasn't stopped the government from its continued effort to silence anyone from dragging the issue back into the public sphere. In fact, when an Al Jazeera documentary team produced a report on the murder in 2015, they were deported and then accompanied to the airport by both the police and the military. Obviously, the Malaysian government wants all of this left dead and buried. But while they can deport journalists and bribe officials and keep most of the public in Malaysia silent, there is one man in Malaysia that they can't keep quiet, Dr Mahathir Mohamed, the former Prime Minister and political teacher to Najib Razak. In 2015, Dr Mahathir called for Najib to resign due to his involvement in the death of Al-Tantuya. He even went so far as to go to a meeting with Sarul's mother, and after that he made a public call for a full investigation, adding that Sarul was simply acting upon orders and should be given the opportunity to state his case, that a policeman doesn't kill people unless they're given the order to do so. While nothing has come of this so far, Malaysia is slated for elections later this year, and only time will tell if this renewed interest in the case and Dr Mahathir's interventions talking to Sarul's mother and calling for Najib to resign will be enough to topple Najib Razak from power. Perhaps then, 
Altantuya and her family will finally see justice. That was Memories of Murder, an Asian true crime podcast. Thank you for listening, and I'd like to remind you to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts if you enjoyed it, and of course all the other places where people hunt down their podcasts. I would also very much like to hear your feedback, so please do write a review for the show on iTunes. Your feedback will help to make the show better and hopefully help keep the show visible to new listeners. Again, thank you for listening. Don't have nightmares. <laughs>